0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, today's Bible reading comes from Matthew 5, verse 17
1: to 20. That's Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Uh... If you haven't met me before, my name is Coy. I'm the Associate Pastor here and it's a joy uh, to see you all here today and that it's another joy to be in the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, And I think the Sermon on the Mount is in so many ways a a radical sermon as we've been seeing. Uh, We're only two weeks in and Jesus has already challenged his listeners with teachings that they had never heard before. Uh, As we heard at the beginning of the series, the, the main thrust of this sermon is one that explains, that articulates what life uh, looks like in the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. And he began his sermon with the, the Beatitudes, uh, the promises of of blessing to citizens of the kingdom of God, words which describe the, the countercultural inner character of such members of the kingdom. And the next Jesus illustrates to his listeners two profound metaphors, you know, salt and light depicting the effects and purpose of kingdom citizenship uh, has on humanity and the imprint uh, a kingdom citizen has on the world, in a sense. All pretty extraordinary teaching so far uh, to those listening. And today we come to a section in Jesus' sermon that would have rocked the hearers on the mount to the core. Uh, there's, There's quite a purposeful and remarkable structure to Jesus' sermon on the mount. Notice that as Jesus starts the sermon and continues on in chapter 5, he increasingly becomes more personal. Jesus first starts off in uh, third person, in the third person in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who, etc. Then towards the end of them, he changes the Beatitudes to uh he shifts it to a, a second person view like blessed are you. And then he talks about you are the salt and light. And then he's as he gets to the passage today our passage today he switches to the first person but there's something extraordinary about it in his first person speech he would say lines such as but I tell you and then if we continue on which we'll hear continuing on in chapter five in the next few weeks he'll finish he'll continue on with lines such as for I tell you but I say to you see this wasn't normal in any sense in those times no rabbi or teacher. Ever spoke like this. Teachers would uh, typically speak in the second or third person, especially when it came to teaching and the law. It'd be like Rabbi Coy said, "Listen to the words of Rabbi Luke." That's how it would be. That's how normal speech would be. But Jesus was radical. He would address the pe- people with words from him. "I say to you," he says. It was deeply personal. It was profoundly authoritative. And it was undeniably needed. See, while the listeners of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had so far heard of the blessings to those who exhibit a kingdom character, that heard of how a citizen of the kingdom of God impacts the world as salt and light. What follows on in our passage today has Jesus giving a a summary description of what author R. Kent Hughes calls a radical righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus was here preaching the good news, the gospel. He was here preaching the kingdom of God is near. And so at this point, Jesus would define further the character of one who is in the kingdom of God. Jesus would describe what a life of righteousness looks like and how it relates to what many listeners at the time knew as righteousness, the Old Testament law. It's a jam-packed few verses, only four verses, but it's so jam-packed it's enough to to awaken the most faithful listener or change the heart of the most avid opponent. In this passage, Jesus would not only bring out the significance of Christian righteousness, but also bring to light the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus has in view the relation between the gospel and the law. And in these four verses of Jesus' sermon, I see this radical righteousness broken up into two sections, the law and Christ and the law and Christians. So we start off with the law and Christ. So Jesus begins this section with quite a gear shift from his previous points in his sermon. Look at how he starts. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Comparing to the, the blessed beginning of his sermon, here he suddenly shifts to a more Uh, negative statement. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Almost almost defensive in tone. And that likely had to do with what was stirring around his public ministry. So a bit of context. For the first century Jew, the law was something that was uh, deeply significant in every aspect of their life. It was what the Israelites were given back uh, in their history, uh, prescriptions and prohibitions commanded as conditions of the Mosaic covenant with the Lord, as seen through something we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament as what we know. You can see the various collections of laws that were required of a nation living as God's people. You can see that in books like Leviticus, for example. You know, principles and statutes to live by, distinguishing them, Israel as a nation set apart to the Lord, restraining them from their their unbridled human nature to sin, diagnosing them, revealing humanity's depravity and a need for God's mercy and grace. See, the law was something first century Jews lived in and under completely. Their lives were utterly regulated by the law. Everything from how they live to what they ate, to even how they could tell the time, was centered on the law that God had given through Moses to these people listening. But while the Jews lived in and under the law, somewhere along the way, religious leaders had taken it a few steps further by implementing in-depth specifics and a wider range of regulations to the law basically they implemented these people called scribes who would make it their their business to reduce the great principles of the law into thousands upon thousands of rules and regulations for example in the law that the sabbath day be kept holy the sabbath day be kept holy one of the the 10 commandments if you've heard it before that no work shall be done the scribes would take it further classifying all sorts of things as work or not work so something like They'll say something like carrying a burden would be defined as work. But then they'd go even further. How do we then define a burden? They'd define a burden as handling food equal in weight to a dried fig. Or using enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. That counts as work. But one, one letter you can do. All good. Not working. Dealing with oil enough to anoint a small member. How do you even define who a small member is? That is unfair. That's like height shaming, right? That's not fair. These are just a few examples of uh, what I read from, from these laws. But you get the point. They would spend hours arguing as to what a person could do on the Sabbath, whether they could lift a chair or brush their beard or wear a brooch, or it would be considered work. See, their law had become a, a religion of legalistic rules and petty regulations. It was a matter of life or death for many of them too, for many of the religious leaders, with the Pharisees being uh, the most intense of the bunch, following these laws to these rules to a T and condemning those who don't. So for these scribes and Pharisees, it is clear that it had become less about obeying God and more about puffing themselves up, you know, more about following morals like some sort of checklist an outward righteousness over an inward one. Enter Jesus, who in his public ministry would heal on the Sabbath, seen in Mark chapter 3. He would also sit with sinners. He would also eat with them in Mark chapter 2. Jesus would be seen breaking some of these false righteous rules put in place by the scribes, which is why the Jewish religious leaders, if we read through the Gospels, they despised him. They called him blasphemous. People were struck by Jesus, people that had heard what he was doing, seeing what he was doing, seeing him break these, these regulations formed by the religious leaders, hearing how he spoke with such authority that asked, what is this? Who is this? A new teaching and with authority? Who is this man that even the impure spirits obey him? Who is this Jesus? So it was natural to think that there would have been murmurs of how Jesus understood the law, right? What was the relation between uh, Jesus' authority and the authority of the law of Moses to these people? So far as Jesus is taught, why hadn't he yet mentioned the law is what was probably going on in many of the listeners' minds, hearts. These were a people, we have to remember that these were a people who would have heard and meditated on this wonderful first psalm, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Which adds to the profoundness of Jesus' opening words in this whole Sermon on the Mount, right? Talking about the many ways people are blessed yet not so far mentioning the law, which is something that they had all kind of been raised with, with this. So the listeners, understandably, would have had this question, which Jesus then undeniably answers. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. See, because Jesus had been seen to have broken repeatedly the rules set out by these religious leaders and not only break them, but to speak with authority in condemning their rules and why he did what he did, many of the Jewish listeners and leaders would have understood Jesus as anti-law. They would have seen, Jesus, this guy does not like the law. He's anti-law, that he was abandoning them. Jesus must be setting the law aside, doing away with it, here to destroy the law. But Jesus would go on and say something actually more controversial than their initial concerns of him abolishing the law, that actually they had got it all wrong and that actually he was here to fulfill the law. See, often when the law and the prophets were proclaimed together, like in a sentence or in a statement, it signified the entire scripture for the people of Jesus' uh, time. For us today, what that means is what they're talking about is the entire Old Testament. So what we then hear is Jesus is saying that he came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. In its original Greek, the words to fulfill here uh, they literally mean uh, to fill. And scholars all throughout uh, history have looked at how we understand these words. Some will say to fill means he would do things he would do things laid down in Scripture. Some say it means to bring out the full meaning of Scripture. Another thought is that to fill means that in Jesus' life and teaching, he would bring Scripture to its completion. And I actually think all these meanings have a great significance in how we understand Jesus' words here, that there's something powerful and something multifaceted about understanding these words to fulfil. Now, let's think back to the entire Old Testament. Think back to, let's say, the the prophecies of the Old Testament, passages all scattered throughout the Old Testament which prophesied this, this coming Messiah, prophecies looking forward to the coming, as we know, of Jesus Christ. Some were more predictive, such as Jesus' place of birth prophesied in Micah 5 or maybe Jesus' death on the cross seen in Psalm 22 or the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. Some were less ex- explicit, some were less obvious, like in Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son has been referenced to Christ. Yet all these Old Testament prophecies look forward to the days of the Messiah foretelling him by word and foreshadowing him in, in figure and type, all fulfilled in who? In Christ, in Jesus. Crowds talking about Jesus would say this about him. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. People were saying this about Jesus. Jesus fulfills the prophecies. We think back to the maybe uh, some of the laws, maybe the ceremonial laws and practices of the Old Testament people in the Old Testament. The priesthood necessary to, to enter the presence of the Holy Lord, the repeated blood sacrifice required for the sins of God's chosen people would be perfectly fulfilled in who? In Jesus. Hebrews 9, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus curing an eternal redemption. This was talking about Jesus. The priesthood that stood between worshipper and God in the Old Testament has ceased as Christ becomes our high priest. The blood sacrifices that no longer required, uh, because, no longer required because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing towards, Jesus became the unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. We think back again to maybe what about Old Testament worship, Once a static altar, then a mobile tent, then a a physical temple. This was how people could meet God in the Old Testament, now fulfilled in Christ as he himself becomes the center of worship. That we can now meet God, not in a place, but through a person. John 4, but the hour is coming and is now here, Jesus says, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We think about the Old Testament people. Old Testament people of God, once an ethnically rooted people, a nation ruled by the God who chose them and they worshipped him, people set apart, called to preserve the promise of the coming kingdom now fulfilled in Christ as he made it an international reality. Look around us. God's chosen people no longer limited to one nation, but God's sovereign rule over all peoples, Rooted in faith in who? In Jesus. Or well, lastly, we think back to Old Testament moral law, the God-given principles of righteous and holy living, meant to be obeyed and kept in accordance uh, with God's command, fulfilled only in Jesus. How? Because he is the only one that lived in perfect obedience, never falling short. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. See, for Jesus to say that he came to fulfill the entire Old Testament is such a beautiful and weighty statement, which has a vast array of meaning and implications for anyone that hears this. If we were to think that Jesus means to fulfill the law and the prophets in only one of the ways I just uh, exemplified before, illustrated before, I think is to too narrow a view. But I think theologian Don Carson says it very well that he says, Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets in many ways because they point toward him. He has certainly not come to abolish them. Rather, he has come to fulfill them in a rich diversity of ways, a richness barely hinted at in these paragraphs. So while there were murmurs that Jesus was there to abolish the law's Jesus' thrust in this section of his sermon is that his life and ministry isn't in opposition to the Old Testament, but rather he is actually bringing to fruition that which it is pointing towards. Christ's attitude to the law was not one of putting it aside, but one that brought attention to its significance. Him. Him. What profound words from Jesus to... and and what profound words from Jesus to the listeners of the time. Yet words that I think can be challenging for us in quite a different way today as we sit here. So I remember a while back being invited to a a, a different church's movie marathon night, um, and the majority voted for a Star Wars marathon. And I was so keen, you know, I was pumped for this overnight event, overnight event. So a dude went out, probably I think it was a leader, went out to the local video store to grab the DVDs, right? You remember those? DVDs. And once back, he chucked in the DVD and the movie began. And to my horror, it was Star Wars Episode One, <laughs> The Phantom Menace. And I asked the boy, I yelled, like, chuck in the actual first one, A New Hope, give us Episode Four, that's the real one. And he says, Yuck, I didn't get that trilogy. Those movies are so old. <laughs> my soul literally hurt, like, hurt. I never saw that church group again. You know. <laughs> deservedly so. <laughs> Similarly, to hear today that Christ fulfills the law and the prophets can easily tempt us to think that the Old Testament isn't as important for us. Because I think we can. what we can so often do is look at the Old Testament and view it as obsolete, disregard it, call it useless. We can just look on TV or the internet and we'll see many times, how many times have we seen somebody on the news or in an interview where they're talking about the Bible and they talk about how the Bible is so outfashioned, how it's so outdated, and whenever they say that, what's the example they use? They use an example from an Old Testament passage. The temptation for a Christian in this forward-thinking world is to regard Old Testament scripture as exactly that, old And what then often continues on is that we disregard the laws as old-fashioned and outdated. We skim past the narratives in the Old Testament and see them as useless or unnecessary in our lives. Ultimately, it leads us to a low view of the Old Testament as a whole. All generations of Christians in history have struggled with this this issue, some even going as far as erasing any Old Testament references in the New Testament, such as Marcion in the 2nd century. He did everything to get rid of the Old Testament. Or even further, some have changed the very words of Jesus here in this passage to instead say, I have not come to fulfill the law of the prophets, but to abolish them. Or even today, where there are many forms of of Christianity which disregard the Old Testament and the law in preference to living only under the law of love and tolerance of everything. See, we see the dangerous path this leads to, don't we? When we have a low view of the Old Testament, it leads to a low view of the law. When we have a low view of the law, it leads to a low view of righteousness. When we have a low view of righteousness, it leads to a low view of sin. And when we have a low view of sin, it leads to a low view of the gospel. Church, we need to see the importance of Jesus' statement here that he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. We need to see that there isn't just a historical link between the Old and New Testament, but there is a Christ-pointing, Christ-redeeming, Christ-living, Christ-fulfilling continuity in both. Theologian J.C. Ryle says, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower we should not and cannot disregard the Old Testament because when we do, we disregard the gospel. Have you guys heard uh, about Pavlov's dog? Yeah, somehow yes. There's a teacher, another teacher put up the hand. Only teachers. I was a teacher. I had no idea who Pavlov's dog was. But anyway, I did a bit of research. And Lena told me about him, my wife. And basically what it was, was it's a learning procedure where a bell was rung anytime a dog was about to get their food. And eventually, what Pavlov, the person, could do was ring the bell and the dog would uh, salivate before the food was even there. The dog had learned to associate the, the sound of the bell with food. So it would trigger any time they'd ring the bell, even if food wasn't there, they'd ring the bell. It would trigger a response anytime time they heard it. My wife Lena said, I do the same with Cadbury Easter bunnies around whenever I hear a Coles commercial around April, just... Like, I start salivating, right? (laughs) Anyway, similarly, I think, I think when we read the Old Testament, it should trigger a response in us to salivate, to thirst for the gospel. Not in a robotic way like a canine would, but in a way where we see the richness of the Old Testament and can't help but reflect on the person on whom it points to the Old Testament must be significant in our lives because it daily reminds us of the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we we see our purpose, how human life was meant to flourish, loving God above all else and loving our neighbour, which Jesus would not only quote later on in this very same sermon, but would live out in full, loving not just his friends, but radically loving his enemies. In the Old Testament, we see our our wretchedness, our human condition, how God's standard is holiness while our our standards is wickedness, which Jesus lives in full the holy life that we could not live. In the Old Testament, we see humanity's deep need, how God has plans and promises of a saviour to redeem our broken relationship with our creator, which Jesus did in full by paying our price at the cost of his life in his death and resurrection. See, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in every way possible. And so when we read it, we can't help but think of where it points. But this does raise the common question, the question of what about the details, the specific laws in the Old Testament, you know, the many regulations that we might say see in something like Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. Do the Sabbath laws that I referred to earlier still apply to us today? Is it just a pick and choose type of thing? And that's a great question to ask. Uh, And to avoid getting too far into a sub-theme of our passage, I I think we can read through the Old Testament and see that the Mosaic law given to the Israelites from God were given to them for their flourishing, to live freely as God's people with what God knows as the good life. And so some of these Old Testament laws were set up only specifically applied, to the na- they specifically applied to the nation of Israel as a means to set them apart as God's people, God's chosen people. For example, prohibiting the eating of pork or not shaving your beard or sideburns. It was a specific covenant. But then there are also some Old Testament laws which were set up purposely as, as rituals pointing towards the gospel fulfilment such as what I said earlier about the priestly system or the the sacrificial system. Yet while these Old Testament laws may have been specific to ancient Israel, I think with Jesus fulfilling the entire Old Testament, there is still relevance for us as God's people today. That as Christians today, we can see Old Testament law as what Ridley lecturer Andrew Judd suggests, not as rules and regulations, but as precious revelation about what God is like and how life works best for us as human beings. Many of its commands reveal principles that are urgently relevant for thinking through how to love God and love our neighbour today. So in summary, the Old Testament law, it guides us as God's people. We see the call to holiness of God's people in the Old Testament then, and we see the call of holiness as God's people here today which is why Jesus says what he says. Don't even think for a second that I have a low view of the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. See, Jesus continues here talking about the Old Testament whole, saying that not even an iota, not a dot will pass from uh, pass from it until all is accomplished. What Jesus describes is, is the very smallest letter, the, the very smallest stroke of a pen. Imagine the dot on the our letter I or even the flick of an apostrophe in the entire Old Testament will not pass away, will not be discarded until all has been fulfilled, until heaven and earth themselves disappear, when Christ returns again and brings fulfillment of the new age of eternity. Think. Every single dot of the Old Testament is more permanent than the ground we stand on, the air we breathe, the sky that we see, the earth, the stars. God's word remains and continues to be alive and active even though heaven and earth pass. The law endures. Jesus by no means came to put away the Old Testament. By no means had a low view of the Old Testament, but he took the Old Testament seriously. He had a supremely high view of the Old Testament. And so as Christians, so should we. And this is a good segue into Jesus' next few words because he now shifts from his attitude to the law and the Christian. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You may have heard this verse quoted before, uh, but quoted in a way that says if someone breaks any of these commands. But a proper translation of this passage is that Jesus wasn't talking about breaking but relaxing, loosening them, essentially saying that uh, they do not matter. And so we see again that Jesus is affirming his attitude towards how highly he views the Old Testament, that even relaxing the smallest one of these commands in Scripture is enough to deem one lesser in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying to relax, to loosen its hold on our conscience, to loosen its authority in our life, to nullify even one of the the commands is serious. Even the smallest one of of these commands is kept but I don't think this holds a literal interpretation at every single injuncture as, as we'll see in next week's passage. But as uh, old Ridley uh, principal Leon Morris says, Jesus' point is that no commandment is to be taken lightly, that a wrong attitude to God's commandments means a lowly position in God's kingdom. The other side of this coin concerns the person who both obeys the commandment and teaches others that's the same to do the same. This is the person who attains honour, who is called great in the kingdom. So what Jesus is speaking into here for those in the kingdom is a call to righteousness. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To be a citizen of God's kingdom is to be righteous. Righteous being, uh, being right, being what, uh, doing what is right in God's eyes, be, uh, being right with him, being right with God. And this call for righteousness would have been astonishing to the listeners as it is for us today. That for citizens of the kingdom, their righteousness must surpass those who in Jesus' time were depicted as the most righteous people. To the Jewish listener, they knew the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones who held on and lived every single law to a tee. All the rules and regulations of God's law, plus the ones that they had made up and created, and to specify uh, that 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 kept them as righteous leaders. They were famous and known for their righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees, but as we heard before and know in context, this was a false righteousness. Theirs was a self-righteousness, one that was about petty rules and regulations to make themselves look better and feel better. So why would Jesus associate the righteousness of someone in the kingdom of God? with that of the scribes or the Pharisees? Why would he do that? Because Jesus' call to righteousness was even greater than that of the most known religious folk of the time. Jesus is pointing out that actually the standard of righteousness that you thought was high doesn't even compare to the standard of righteousness I have for those who want in on the kingdom of God. This is a radical righteousness. Jesus flips the narrative completely on its head. You thought I came to rid the law. I've come to show you how much higher I view it. Hearing this, we come to realize that that Christ's call for righteousness is actually more challenging and more demanding. And as we hear over the next few weeks, more rewarding than any legal system could be. Don Carson sums it up this way. The Old Testament pointed to the Messiah and the kingdom he would introduce. Jesus claiming to fulfill that Old Testament anticipation introduces the kingdom to his followers. In doing so, he stresses obedience and surpassing righteousness without with with there is no admittance. See, it's at this stage of Jesus' sermon, like the listeners on the mount, we should be squirming a bit in our seats Because at this stage, we can clearly understand that Jesus didn't come to instill some sort of outward righteousness of following legalistic rules and regulations to a T, like the scribes and Pharisees, something we actually do more often than we'd like. But we also see that Jesus didn't come to inspire a low view of righteousness in regard to the law, something we definitely do more often than we'd like. But Jesus... For both demanded a greater righteousness, a more radical one, a righteousness that a listener can only reflect and go back to Jesus' very first line in his sermon, Blessed is the poor in spirit, a righteousness that we can think deep and hard about and know full well that we simply cannot reach. We are too spiritually bankrupt to get even close to this righteousness that the kingdom of God demands. The more we realise the radicalness of God's righteousness, the more we realise that we can't live up to them on our own. And that's exactly what Jesus wants his listeners to hear. Because as Jesus preached this to those on the mount, he was laying down the foundations of what was soon they would come soon to know as the gift of the gospel, that Jesus the one who fulfills scripture was indeed the Savior who would redeem God's people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, that we are saved by grace alone, that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel of Christ tells us that we are forgiven, that out of his grace we are made right with God, justified even though we do not deserve it but it is a given righteousness, a righteousness from Christ. That is our gift. I think of the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most religious and righteous of Pharisees, who when understanding the weight and beauty of the gospel of Christ, see what Paul says in Philippians 3. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. We can't live up to God's standard of righteousness, yet we have a saviour who does it for us. So then, this raises the question, does this mean we can believe in Jesus and live how we want to live? By no means. I think Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't want to keep us where we are, but rather through the work of Jesus, we are made right, not only positionally but experientially. I was recently talking with my pastor friend and he shared with me a story of a fellow in his church who I'd met a few years back, uh, this fellow came to faith a, a few years ago, but only recently he, he confessed to, his, uh, to my friend, to my pastor friend, that for the early parts of his Christian faith, Christian life, he lived in a way that wasn't any different to before he knew Jesus. He was still looking at porn on the regular. He was still partying and getting hammered every weekend he could. He lived in freedom. But something didn't seem right. And so as he's reading through the Psalms, he went to the Word and he was reading through the Psalms, he came across Psalm 19 and he was struck by verse 7 and 8, which says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And it was then that he had this newfound desire to live in obedience to his Lord he told my, my pastor friend that it was then that he saw that to live in righteousness and obedience to God was to truly be free, free from porn, free from drunkenness, free from sin, a real freedom in Christ as his heart changed, his heart's desires changed, changed to God's desires. And what's awesome is that since then a daily prayer of his that he always shares every week at church is that every day he would delight in the law of the Lord. That's always what he asked the church to pray for for him. And my pastor friend told me that since then, there's been a notable change in this gentleman inside and out. See, there's something beautiful about a kingdom citizen who knows Jesus as their king and so lives out a joy and a desire of the law in obedience to our king. And what's awesome is that this is something God promises in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, this is amazing. This is the new covenant that we have the law written on. On our hearts, that as kingdom people, we who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, we are made new. We have new hearts, and written on our hearts is the law of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I heard a pastor once say that we are not saved, we are not just saved from something but we are saved to something. As kingdom people there is a spiritual transformation with the law of God written on our hearts, there is justification that that God has declared us righteous through the work of Christ. But there's also sanctification that God has given us his spirit that we may grow in righteousness. And so we pursue holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, if the gospel of Christ doesn't bring us to our knees and instill a desire for us to transform, then it really isn't good news. So, guys, let's live with a radical obedience to the one who gives us his radical righteousness. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. When we have a high view of the Old Testament, it leads to a high view of the law. When we have a high view of the law, it leads to a high view of sin. When we have a high view of sin, it leads to a high view of Christ's grace. And when we have a high view of Christ's grace, we will have a high view of holiness. To know Jesus as our Lord means we can wholeheartedly live and say, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and and night, for we know personally the one who these words are fulfilled in. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God who has graciously graciously given us your word. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the richness, the beauty, and the relevance of it. Help us see more of the gospel as we meditate on all of your word. Let us see the profoundness of a saviour king who came not to abolish the law and the prophets but fulfil it. We thank you for your amazing grace in sending Jesus to be the righteousness that we could not. May your spirit continue to mould and transform us to be more like your son each and every day. May we hunger for Jesus. May we hunger for your word. May we hunger to live in holiness only by your power, your spirit, your grace. Amen.